0: Great message of the power of the gospel to bring life where there's been death and forgiveness where there has been sin. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to open them to Luke chapter 4 with us this morning. We are continuing in the gospel of Luke, and uh, we come to the next event in the gospel shared with us here. In in case you haven't heard, to make you aware, I have... uh, I've heard that American Idol is returning to the airwaves. It's now going to be moving from Fox to ABC, in case you were wondering. And I also have discovered that today, auditions are being held in Asheville, North Carolina, just down the road from us. Don't leave yet, wait till we're done, uh, and then you can run down there for your audition. One of the segments that you may remember if you've ever watched the show is the hometown visits that they do where they take those who have made it through the bulk of the contest and and they take them to their hometown. And it's a, it's a great homecoming reunion kind of atmosphere. Uh, local classmates at the high school show up. Maybe they even have a concert uh, on the football field there. And, and, and we're able to, to peek into the private lives for just a moment of these contestants. However limited it might be. And really just only the private part they want us to see. And the fans roll out. And they, they, they cheer for the hometown boys the hometown girl that they want to win the contest American Idol. Fans will come out and they'll interview them and they'll say, oh yeah, I've known him, I've known her for years. We've known each other for as long as I can remember why we've been best of friends. And I'm thinking, really? Is that really happening? Do you really have that many best friends? You're a blessed man, a blessed woman if you do. But I know that someone somewhere that maybe they did interview and thought that's not going to play well if we put that on television is thinking, I cannot believe that this person is on the stage of American Idol right now. I can't believe that they made it. Well, I know how they acted in high school. Let me tell you some of the things that they did that I know about. Or, I know how she used to talk about everyone else. See, things like that don't make for good television. We want to hear the story, local boy makes good, local girl makes good, and so they have the fanfare of coming home for this reunion. It's the same way, in a sense, in the life of Jesus this morning. In Luke chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 14, and Jesus is now, as we read in his, uh, the encounter of His baptism and the beginning of His ministry, now about 30 years of age. And he grew up in a little town called Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. And he was warned with his family, or his family was warned to flee to Egypt because Herod was seeking to take his life. You know the story. And then after Herod died, Joseph was told it's safe to come back into Galilee, into the the promised land. And so they make their way back, and they live in this little town called Nazareth. There's nothing to it. It's it's not a big town, even by today's standards. Certainly much bigger today than it was in the days of Jesus. But there just wasn't much to the city of Nazareth. But it was the place where Jesus grew. It was the place where he was when we read at 12 years of age. He and his family went to Jerusalem and they went through the, 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 the feast there and, and all of the observances there in the temple in Jerusalem. And he got departed from his family while he's there teaching the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, the, the, the Jewish leaders. All of this happened while he was growing up in Nazareth. Now he's, he's been away for a while, he's, he's been in the wilderness, he's been involved in ministry, but now he's coming home. What's going to happen? Let's begin reading in verse 14 of chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. That's the region in which you would find the city of Nazareth. He, he comes to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What an odd turn of events we have in the life of Jesus. I want you to notice just a couple of things with me this morning out of this passage and it's a text that we will continue next week with the conclusion uh, of these verses in the life of Jesus and what has taken place in his ministry and I want you to notice the initial reception that Jesus received not just in Nazareth but here at the beginning stages of his ministry. We read about it in verse 14 and 15. Jesus returned in the power of the spirit of Galilee in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. Everyone is hearing of Jesus. Everyone is hearing of the things that Jesus has done. And it's why we read in verse 15 that He was being glorified by all. Of course He was. When you think about the things that He was doing here at the beginning stages of His ministry, the hopes of people were beginning to be pinned upon Jesus. They thought that their Redeemer had come, but their definition of Redeemer was very different than what the Redeemer would actually accomplish. They were looking for a political ruler. They were looking for one who would redeem them out of the bondage of slavery under Roman uh, oppression. They were looking for someone that would bring a physical, uh, legal freedom to them. And Jesus had a much deeper purpose than that. So we read that He was being glorified by all. In verse 22, we read that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. There was a, there was a reaction of reception, of acceptance to Jesus. We read about the synagogue here. It is the central focus of the setting of the story for us this morning. We find Jesus in the synagogue. And what's interesting to me, if I can just take it aside for just a moment, I want you to notice with me this morning in verse 16, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The synagogue was a place, a local place for Jews to worship within their town. It was where they would learn the Word of God. They would be taught the Word of God. See, a tragic thing had happened in the year 586 B.C., 586 586 years before Christ. The Babylonians had come in and they had absolutely decimated Israel. They had destroyed the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, and they had destroyed the temple, just leaving rubble in its place. And so you have these exiled Jews with their temple destroyed, many of their homes destroyed... And so they would gather together in small groups to hear the teaching of God's Word. And that developed into what we now know as the synagogues within a city. If there were ten Jewish men and families, they could establish a synagogue in that city. What that meant is that here in this region of Galilee, roughly 200, 250 cities and villages, that almost all of them would have at least one synagogue. Some cities may have had many more. The synagogue wasn't a replacement for the temple in Jerusalem. The, the temple in Jerusalem was the heart, the soul of Judaism. Judaism. It was only at the temple that sacrifices could be offered, only at the temple that the Jewish feasts could be commemorated and celebrated there. But the synagogue became an extremely important part of Jewish life for those who lived away from Jerusalem and couldn't attend the temple on a regular basis to hear the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. It takes center stage for us in the setting of what's taking place. Jesus is in the synagogue. And it's interesting to me, you read in verse 16, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Why did Jesus go to the synagogue? Did Jesus go to the synagogue because he wanted to see friends that he hadn't seen for a while perhaps? Maybe to to reconnect with people? No, that wasn't the reason he went to the synagogue. Did he go to the synagogue because he thought something interesting might be going on? I want to see what they have going on. No, that wasn't the reason that he went to the synagogue. Well, did perhaps he feel guilty and thought, I I should go attend some sort of religious ceremony? No, that wasn't the reason that he went to the synagogue. He went to the synagogue because it was his custom. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. As was his custom. Can I make an application to us today from this? If it was the custom of Jesus not going to the synagogue for us, but still nonetheless gathering together with God's people to hear the teaching and the preaching of God's Word, should it not be the custom for us as well? Indeed, it should. Why don't Why don't don't we go to church just because we should? I remember growing up, I had all the arguments that every other child has growing up, and I want to go to church. Why do I have to go to church? Well, you go to church because you should. That's why you go to church. It was either that or because mom and daddy said so. That was the reason. Perfectly valid reason. I didn't think so as a child, but I know it is now that I'm a parent. Perfectly valid reason because I said so. You mean mean I I should go to church just out of habit? You mean I should go to church just out of custom? Yes. Yes, that's what I mean. Oh, but wait a minute. Doesn't it make it invalid unless you feel like going, unless you want to go? No, it doesn't make it invalid because, listen, it's always right to do the right things regardless of how you feel about it. I want to today commend you for for being here. I I know that I'm preaching to the proverbial choir. You're saying, well, don't get too hard on us. We're here. Thank you. I'm glad that you're here. I appreciate that. You can tell the others I spoke to them this morning if you'd like (laughs) to. I want to commend you today for, for going when maybe you didn't want to. For coming when you woke up this morning and thought, boy, I sure could sleep in today. By the way, I said the same thing, you know. Well, I sure could sleep in today. Yeah. So I want to commend you for being here simply because it's the right thing to do. No bonuses, no special accolades. And let me just tell you, from, from a pastoral perspective, when a congregation gathers simply because it is their custom, simply because we're supposed to do that, then it frees those of us who are involved in preparation of worship from thinking something like this. I wonder how we can make it so they're going to like it. Because if they don't like it, they might not come back next week. And if they don't come back next week, then we're not going to have anybody to make it for next week. And it frees us from that. I just wish we could put a curse on all of that nonsensical thinking like that. Where people say, well, I, 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 I just didn't get much out of it. Well, chances are you didn't put much into it. So that's probably why you didn't get much out of it well, I, I, I just, I didn't feel good when I left. You know, I, I, I want to I I feel the emotional rush. I want to feel the excitement. Friends, if the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot excite us, then tell me what can. As was his custom. It was customary for Jesus to do this. And if he has set an example for us to follow, then we should want to follow him. To gather with God's people to hear the teaching and the preaching of God's word not because it's don't you dare come because it's me you come because it is the word of God don't come because it's Josh come because we sing the word of God don't come because it's Stephen come because he teaches the word of God put your emphasis on the word of God and then it doesn't matter who's standing in front of you what matters is the word of God is being proclaimed and make it your custom to do that. Can I let you apply this to your own lives? Or maybe do I need to make application? Maybe I need to make application. It may matter who's standing before you to proclaim the word after I make application. Because you may say, we don't want him anymore standing up there. Can I just say to us today that far too many people in our culture have made a God out of ball. And I, I listen, I love football. I'm growing to love basketball. I still can't stand baseball. But. <laughs> but parents, let me tell you, when we say to our children, That this other stuff is more important than the gathering together with God's people. What are we saying to them? I know what we say. Again, I I like to sleep in. Sunday is the only day that I have. Well, Well, get rid of something else. Say to something else, this needs to go out of my life so I can make the habit, so I can make the custom of gathering together with God's people to hear the word of God being taught. Why is it that obedience to God's command is the one we think is the optional one? Can't go to church because I have to do this. What would happen if enough of us stood up and said, I can't do this because I have to go to church to be with God's people? Perhaps I should have let you apply it yourself. Okay. I'm not trying to make enemies. I'm trying to help us make priorities in our lives that will affect eternity. Make it your custom to meet with God's people as God has commanded. Where, you say, has He commanded it? Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Are you aware of the fact that by your attendance, by your presence here, you are an encouragement to those who are around you? That's the whole point of this. It's not because it encourages me. Oh, the pastor just wants a big crowd there. Listen, I don't care if God gives me ten sheep to shepherd or ten thousand sheep to shepherd. It's irrelevant. The point is encouraging one another by being together with one another. All right, that was an aside. Let's, let, enough of the not part of the sermon sermon. Let's move on to the crux of the matter here. Gee whiz. <sighs> Notice again how Jesus was received by the people. He was glorified by all. All spoke well of him. What a great place this is to be. In fact, Mark gives us more insight to all of this. If if you want to turn over to Mark chapter 1, if you don't have your Bibles, I'll have the verses on the screen. You can can read along with us there. Just write them down later if you'd like to, whatever. Mark gives us greater insight into all of this. He tells us what happened in Capernaum. Remember in in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, I know what what you are thinking. You're thinking, why don't you do here what you did in Capernaum? Well, what in the world did he do in Capernaum? Well, let's let's look at this again, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. This is Jesus and, and his disciples, those that he had just recently called, in fact. And immediately on the Sabbath, here he is again, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Why did he do that? Because it was his custom. You know what happened while he was here in in Capernaum? The first encounter that we read is he's teaching in the synagogue and there is a man who comes in who is demon-possessed. And Jesus heals this man of his demon possession. He casts out the demon. And then we read of how Jesus is teaching with great authority in the synagogue. And then we hear how he goes to Simon's mother-in-law who is sick, going to the home there, and he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And then we come to this in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 30. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. You get the picture. People are just filing through one after another, after another, after another. And Jesus is bringing healing to them. All sorts of ailments, all sorts of maladies, demon possessions, everything that could be brought to him was brought to him and Jesus was healing them. What a great achievement. Crowds are at their highest. We read after that 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 Jesus slips out to be alone. And the crowds were looking for him. They're, they're coming back for more the next day. The disciples go out looking for him, and then finally they find him, and they come to him, Jesus, they want more. Jesus, this is it. Man, this is great. The crowds are everywhere, and they want more of it, Jesus. Let's go back. Let's show them more. This is your chance, Jesus. Look at what he says in Mark chapter 1, verse 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. (laughs) You see, the people's, their initial reaction of acceptance and of excitement revolves around his healing ministry. The great miracle worker. But Jesus says, I've got to go preach to the others. Preach what? Preach the message of the good news of salvation. And that's what he does in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4 we have Jesus' initial sermon. Probably not the first sermon that he ever preached, but the first one recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. We find it in verse 16 down to verse 21. Jesus' uh, his, his text and what he says about the text. He comes to the synagogue in Nazareth. Remember, he had grown up here. He, he, had, he had come to this synagogue every Sabbath with his, with his mother at, at least. We, we don't know when Joseph would have gone out of the picture, probably through death. We don't know when it happened. But he comes with his family to the synagogue, and, and, and he's been in this very place during his childhood, and now he is returning. The atmosphere was palpable. You could almost touch the excitement. What would happen? Here's our own The synagogues, you see, didn't have a full-time teacher. The ruler of the synagogue could approve someone to be able to teach in the synagogue. And and typically, if there was a noted teacher available, then that one or a, a visiting rabbi that might be passing through town, then he would likely be invited to preach. It happened to Jesus constantly. It happened to Paul constantly, invited to preach in the synagogues. The order of worship in the synagogue was a very set thing. There would be singing at the beginning of the service. They would typically sing Psalms 145 to 150 in there. And then there would be the the reciting of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they would begin with with that. There would be a time of prayer. And then there would be a reading of a passage of Scripture from the Pentateuch, the, the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament there would be an attendant whose responsibility it was to keep the scrolls in order, and he would pull out the scroll of the writings of Moses, and he would take it before a desk, and he would unroll it there to the reading for the day. And the person who was assigned that would read the passage, and then it would be given back to the attendant, who would roll it back up, put it back in its cloth covering, and put it back in the storage until the next time it was needed. And then there would be a reading of a passage from one of the prophets of the Old Testament. After the reading of that that passage, the sermon would be delivered and then the benediction would be given and people would go home. So you can see where Jesus fits into this order. He reads the prophet, specifically the prophet Isaiah that was read for us earlier, and he delivers the sermon. Here is what he reads to the people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now everyone is prepared for the sermon. That's what takes place next. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The only recorded portion that we have of the sermon of Jesus in in this text. Short sermon. I had a gentleman just a couple of weeks ago uh, tell me this. He said, uh, you know, I heard someone tell the secret of a good sermon. Secret of a good sermon, have a powerful beginning, have a powerful ending, and put them close together. That's the secret of a good sermon. Another gentleman decided to tell me that sermons and biscuits are both helped by a single ingredient, shortening. I don't know really what to make of that. I I personally don't understand the clamor for shorter sermons. For some of you, it's the best sleep you get all week, so I would think you would want it long. Back to Jesus' sermon this morning. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. No wonder they spoke well of Him. Go back again to what He has said. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Wow. What a great task! From this, many have, have designed a social aspect of ministry, involved in social justice causes, things of that nature. Please understand, as the church of God, we need to be involved in those things. We have a God who is a God of justice, and as a God of justice, we should be seeking justice to, to, to show forth his character. That's not the primary teaching of the passage, though much deeper meaning to all of this. Jesus begins by saying he has come to proclaim good news to the poor. The, the word poor refers to those who are in spiritual poverty. Jesus in his beatitude said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what he's talking about here. The, the word means to cringe. It means to shrink back. It means to cower. The idea is of a beggar fringing in the shadows, cowering in shame at his lot in life. It's a word that would speak of extreme deprivation. Someone who was reduced to begging on the streets for sustenance. Kind of like Lazarus that we've read about in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that Lazarus was laid on the street there uh, dependent upon their grace and the mercy of others for what he needed. In other words, these who are poor have nothing by which to commend themselves at all. If they're accepted by anyone, it is purely on the grace of the one who extends it. Not because they have anything that would merit it. Reminds me so much of what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. To proclaim good news to the poor, to those who realize they have nothing to offer God, but come with empty hands, to be filled with His grace and His mercy. I'm convinced that some of you today remain lost despite having listened to preaching month after month, week after week, because you're not prepared to say, I'm poor in spirit, I have nothing. Nothing. And that's who God receives those who have nothing, when we think we have something to give Him, as though God should be excited that we're coming to Him, we display a haughtiness and an arrogance that has no place in the reception of mercy given by God. Jesus proclaims good news to the captives. Whatever else might be involved here, Jesus makes it really clear in John chapter 8 that the slavery about which he is concerned is the slavery to sin. Listen to John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What good news this is for those whose lives are trapped by by habitual behavior, trapped in the grip of lust, trapped in the grip of resentment, trapped in bitter jealousy, trapped by a swearing tongue, trapped by a lying mouth trapped and that's all of us apart from Christ Jesus came preaching liberty to those who are trapped the the word liberty there is uh, the word at its root forgiveness that's what the word means Jesus comes along and he says there's forgiveness for your sin." It can be blotted out. It can be removed. It can be undone. It can be wiped away from you. It can be no longer held against you. As the hymn of Charles Wesley says, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive." And then Jesus preaches a message of good news for the blind. Again, it's not physical blindness, although Jesus did heal much physical blindness. He speaks of spiritual blindness here. And after all, let me ask you, what what good is it to be blind physically and have your eyesight restored to only one day die and stand before God in judgment without your heart being right? It does no good. The issue is our spiritual blindness. Ask God to open our eyes to the truth. Confess again your neediness for Him that when His Word is opened that He would reveal Himself to you. And Christians, pray it for others. Before you ever speak to others about God, speak to God about those others. Ask God to open their eyes that they might see their need for a Savior. Why? Because as we read a moment ago, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God of this world has done this. Satan has blinded their eyes. Ask that God would open your eyes and see the truth. And then finally he he preaches the message of good news for the oppressed. To set at liberty those who were oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That year is known as the year of jubilee. If if you'd like to, you can look later this afternoon in Leviticus chapter 25 and you'll see the, the foundational teaching for the year of jubilee. It was a year that happened every 50 years. And in that 50 year time, all debts were blotted out. Slaves were set free. It's as though Jesus is saying to the people, I know that you know about the year of Jubilee. I know you think of it happening only once in a lifetime, maybe maybe twice, but only once in significance to where you are. But Jesus says, I'm telling you, it's going to happen every single day since I'm here. Every day the sin can be canceled. Every day those enslaved to sin can be set free. This is His sermon. This is what He means. It's the canceling, the removing of debt. Spiritual sight restored, liberty gained, oppression overruled. It's good news for the poor in spirit to find spiritual riches in Jesus, for those captive to sin to find freedom in Jesus, for the spiritually blind to find their sight in Jesus, for the oppressed and the beat down to find liberty in Jesus. And Jesus says today it is fulfilled. The day it's fulfilled. Friends, I want to say to you that today it can be fulfilled in your life as well. For those of you who are apart from Christ, for those of you who are still in bondage to your sin, for those of you who are still spiritually blinded, for those of you who are still walking around under the oppression of your sin, it can be the day of jubilee for you. It can be the day that Jesus sets you free. All spoke well of him. Marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. No doubt. Liberty, freedom, forgiveness, hope. But then, someone said, is not this Joseph's son? And there it is. He's just one of us. Really? We knew him when. Now the doubt creeps in. It will intensify until next week as we, Lord willing, look at the next part of the chapter. The opinion polls have shifted. Those who marveled at him Those, those who glorify him. The new polls are taken. And he has to leave the city under threat of death. How can it happen? How, how can the tides shift so quickly? They do so because we are a fickle people. Governed more by our emotions than by the word of God. See, here's the thing I want you to understand from all of this. You cannot stay neutral when it comes to Jesus. It's impossible. Jesus himself, he even said, you're either for me or you're against me. So I wonder today, which are you? Are you for Him? Or are you against Him? Where do you stand? Do you marvel at Him? Do you glorify Him? Or do you wish He would go away and leave you alone? Your eternal destiny hinges upon what you do with Jesus. And so I extend an invitation to all of us who are without Christ today. Everyone here, who is apart from Jesus Christ, I want you to hear me. Please, for a moment, put everything else out of your mind and understand this. What you do with Jesus has eternal consequences. You will either receive forgiveness and be in His presence forever, or you will die eternally condemned, separated in hell from Him forever. But you cannot be neutral. It is impossible to stay neutral about Jesus. For those of us who are believers, can we follow the custom of Jesus and simply give the message of good news to the people around us? know anybody captive to sin? Sure you do. You know anybody whose eyes have been blinded to the things of God? Sure. You know anybody living in oppression? Sure. Can we point them to Jesus so they might have eternal life? It's the only hope we've got. It's the only hope they've got. Pray with me this morning. Father, Father, Your word has the ability to strike at our very core. And for that, I thank you. Father, I pray, asking today, please, would you open our eyes to your word? That we would understand it, apply it, and live in it. Father, in this place today, I'm sure that there are those without Christ. It terrifies me for them, Father, what awaits. And so I would ask, please, would you open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ, to see His grace and glory, and be changed by Him, forgiven by Him. Father, I pray for us as your people, your church, that we would surrender ourselves to you. That on our lips would be the same message as was on the lips of Jesus. And that we would faithfully, consistently, boldly point people to Him. We ask this in His name. Amen.